you send in your questions, and we're um, working on them. What do you think, Nate? Nate could probably do it. Nate, what do you think? Nate. 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 We received hundreds of questions, like a ton of questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? How do I know God's will for my life? What happened to all the dinosaurs? Should I marry Fred? Do all roads lead to God? How can I forgive my dad? Can I watch the ravens play in heaven? How do I get my husband to put the toilet seat down? Do the pastors ever disagree with each other? We don't have all the answers, but today we will tackle a few of your questions. Why? Because you asked for it. Hello, Mountain. It's good to see everyone. Glad you're with us. If you're new at Mountain, especially welcome. Glad you're here at all of our campuses. Um, We're in the middle of a series called You Asked For It. And the whole idea was just nothing's off the table. Everything's a go. You can throw out whatever questions you want. And boy, did you guys. Uh, We got a lot of questions on a lot of things. And we're just doing our best week by week to try to present some ways to think about things and to try to give some answers. Uh, And we're using a a scripture out of James as kind of a a guide, a good frame, a reminder. It says this in the scriptures, if any of you is deficient in wisdom, okay, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without reprimand, and it will be given to you. Just a reminder that what we're really seeking here is wisdom of God. And so with that, we dive into some more questions. And Arena, we kind of lumped them together in some areas that, that everyone wanted to talk about. Uh, and so we, we come today, like other weeks, with, with humility, with a posture of eagerness and anticipation and learning. And let's dive in. So uh, guys, um, over the last year, we have seen something I've never seen in my lifetime in the realm of politics. Ooh, you hear the, you hear the murmur? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, it's like incredible. It used to be like a joke, like, hey, don't bring up politics at our dinner party because that's uncomfortable and stuff. Well, now it's not even a funny joke because there's, the intensity is so high. There's so much anger and polarization. And, and so as Christian people, we come into this, and sometimes we're right in the middle of it. And, and, and so as God's people, Jesus followers, how are we supposed to think and talk about politics and how are we supposed to think about it? At all? Rob, get us started. Well, we received a lot of politics-related questions, as you might imagine. Uh, questions like, what is our role in politics as a church? How should Christians view the death penalty, abortion, environment? creation care? How do we as Christ followers follow Jesus' example in calling out the injustices in our society, especially when uh, calling that out, uh, it makes it so quickly politicized and people assume you're on one side or the other? Or how do I deal with this political climate of fear that we find ourselves in? And throughout history, Christians and churches have dealt with this issue differently. Sometimes Christians and churches jump right in and, and play a, a big role in the political realm, and other times they stay away from it and focus more on the, the core of the gospel message. And so as Christians have approached that differently, it's one of those non-essentials that we just acknowledge up front that there's going to be a range of perspectives in a room like this or at all of our campuses around this issue. So I think as we consider politics, the place we need to start is to think through our own lives and ask ourselves the question, what is it that's at the center of my life? 
Often we find our lives centered around what's best for me, what's best for my life. That's in the center of our hub. That's the, that is our hub at the center of our wheel. And we've got all these other spokes extending out from that center point of what's best for me. Hobbies, sports, marriage, kids, occupation, politics, America, religion, all kinds of good things in our lives, all centered by what is best for us. I did it my way as a song might be used as our national anthem when we think this way. And the problem with all of this is that Jesus came and he turned everything upside down. Turns out that centering our lives on what is best for us is not what Christ asked for for his followers. Jesus said that we're to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and that everything else, all these other things will be coming along after that. He said that his mission when he came was to proclaim good news of God's kingdom to all people. And then he went around and shared the good news of the kingdom hundreds and hundreds of times in the gospels. When his followers asked him to teach them to pray, he said to pray that God's kingdom would come on earth in our lives as it is in heaven, that the center point would be Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus and his kingdom are the hub, and our lives should be Christ-centered or kingdom-centered, and everything else in our life should be subjected under his lordship and extended out from that center point. So in his letter to the church in Rome, Paul wrote these words. He said, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your eating, sleeping, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it even without thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. So, what is at the center of your life? Imagine if all these spokes in our lives flowed out from a Christ-centered, kingdom-centered life. It would... We would do our jobs as if God were doing our jobs instead of us. We would love our families as if Christ were loving them in our place. And our political views and involvement and even our place as Americans would be subject to a greater kingdom and a greater authority in Jesus. And as a result, whatever advances the gospel, whatever advances the good news of Christ's kingdom, that must take priority over any political candidate, any political party, or any policy, or even what is best for us as Americans. When we are kingdom-centered or Christ-centered, that becomes the plumb line that we can lay beside any candidate or any political platform to evaluate and see if it measures up to Christ's standard for us. Because every political candidate, every party platform is going to align with Christ's kingdom in some ways, and it's going to differ from Christ's kingdom in some ways. And we must always tow the kingdom line and not the party line. So with politics and all these other spokes that can work their way to be the center. The question for us is, what is at the center of your life? First Peter wrote these words. He said that we are temporary residents and foreigners here because we belong to a different kingdom, and we live our lives under a different authority, and that is Jesus. Hmm. What's at the center? What's the hub? It's almost like you can say it this way. Are you primarily a Republican or a Democrat who happens to be a Christian or are, are you primarily a Christ follower who then might be a Republican or a Democrat or what have you? I mean, it's a different yep. way of thinking. It's a great start to us. Now, even with that, though, let's be honest, even with that, 
people who love Jesus are still going to have disagreements about political things. And so let's get practical, all right? We heard somebody say things like this. I don't understand how you can be a Christian and not vote for Trump. I don't understand how you can be a Christian and vote for Trump. You have two people saying opposite things. How do we, let's get practical, help us out here a little bit, Nate. All right. Well, and so there's a lot that could be said, and this is by no means an exhaustive list, but I'm going to give you three tips today. And uh, for this first one, bear with me because I might use some complex and highly theological language, but you will be able to get to follow along with this concept, okay? The first thing I want to say is this, don't be a jerk. <laughs> Everybody understand? So <clears throat> really, I mean, it goes back to what your mom or someone else taught you when you were little. If you can't say something nice, something kind, then maybe don't say anything at all, right? Um, think about social media. Think about all the ways we put ourselves out there. It's like, the, it's like if you're a person who has a Jesus sticker on your car and uh, you drive like a jerk, right? You just make everybody mad on the road. Uh, you need to either stop driving like that or stop driving completely, take the bus or whatever, or take the sticker off your car. Just do that. Like Philippians 1.27 says this, whatever happens, conduct yourselves. Okay, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We should put that like right at our keyboard for our computer. Yes. So it, it becomes a exactly. filter on all our social exactly. media. Exactly. Well, and here's another great one. We're talking about humility. We're talking about you don't know everything. Listen to this text from 2 Timothy chapter 2. Flee... Run away from the evil desires of youth. Instead, pursue, go after righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. You know that going in, right? And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach and be patient with difficult people. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will change these people's hearts. God does the changing of hearts and they will learn the truth. What if we filtered everything we put out there about politics and everything else through that text? It would be amazing. Second thing I would say is be a builder. There is um, all kinds of stuff in scripture about encouraging one another, and building one another up. Uh, a lot of people like the home improvement shows, you know, the Fixer Upper is a big one these days, with old Chip and Joanna, and um, a lot of times people love uh, they, what they call demo day, like demolition day, it's when they come in and smash out all the old walls, and it looks like a lot of fun, but you know, anybody can do that, and if the whole show was just demo day, it would not be a very good show. The reason we love these shows is because something beautiful is built and created. There's art and and, you know, skill and craft involved. And so I want to just challenge you to be like that with your life and your words and, and your relationships and your communities with people. Build something. Build something beautiful. Build into people. Do not be someone who's just known for what they say or what they're against. Do not add to the, just the, all the negativity and the noise. Build something good and positive. And the third thing I would say is just put some skin on this. You know, you need to, each one of us needs to intentionally seek out other people, human beings who have different and even opposite political views as us. And here's the good news. Look to your left and right. They're sitting on your row. Okay. 
And that's one of the things I love about our church. I love that about Mountain because we have all kinds of folks and viewpoints here. And so what you need to do is befriend one of those people. We're talking about actual life-on-life table fellowship in each other's homes, listening and learning from people who hold very different stances and opinions than you. And until you can make this stuff about not just about issues, but about real human beings who believe differently than you on some of these issues, then we're not, we're not going to get there. So that's just a few practical tips. Okay, everybody raise your right hand. <clears throat> Come on, all campuses, repeat after me. I, I, I will not be a jerk. Will not, be, will not a be a jerk. Okay, we're making progress. All right, this is good. This is good. So sometimes people will come and they'll say to one of the pastors, like, hey, um, why don't you take a stand? Or when are you going to endorse that candidate? Or when are you going to kind of speak up and get into the nitty-gritty on this issue or that that's so, so important? Uh, you know, is it because, uh, you know, you guys don't speak out more on political stuff because, um, you know, you don't think Christians should be involved in the real world or because um, you have a tax-exempt status and you don't want to mess with it or because you don't know what to say? Are you just a little chicken weenie preacher or what, what, are you afraid? What, so the answer, no, 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 and no. Here's why. Because we have one mission. We have one mission. We didn't even think, it, it, is, it was given to us by Jesus himself. And you can't have multiple things that are your main thing. You get one shot at having a main thing. And Jesus told us already what that's supposed to be. It's leading someone to a relationship with Jesus and helping everyone who's in a relationship with Jesus go deeper. The way we state that around Mountain is we're here to make disciples more and better disciples. And when you give your voice to any other issue other than that, don't expect to come back and have anyone willing to hear you on the main thing. Because, you know, the moment I say, I think, and by the way, as we close today, I think you should have this political view or you should vote for that person or whatever, and you don't agree with that, I've given you a reason to stop listening to me. And now I might not have a voice or ability to say to you the one thing that actually I've been charged as a church now to talk about and to be about, and that is, that is Jesus. So that's pretty important stuff. Um, let's be honest. We're working upstream. We're working uphill uh, in terms of how our society is viewing Christianity these days, right? We're already working uphill on that in terms of people antagonistic and skeptical and all this stuff. And one of the reasons is that a lot of people outside the church think of Christians as basically pawns of a political party. Well, they just kind of in the hip pocket of the Republican Party. Or those people, they just kind of do whatever the Democrats want or whatever. And, and we don't want to be pawns of anyone. We've got a larger mission, more important than any of that. So uh, there's a verse in, in 1 Corinthians 4 where Paul is saying, this is how we want everyone to think of us. It's like this. This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ. That's what we need to be known for. And as those entrusted with the mysteries God is revealed. So it's saying we're stewards. It's a steward. Stewardship is when that isn't yours, but I'm going to give it to you. Now hold on to it. Don't mess it up and manage it well. And God has given us, the church, Christians, one thing to be a steward of, and it is Jesus Christ. So for us to say, well, that's interesting. Thank you, God. I'm going to put that down and pick up my own hobby horse or these other issues that are secondary. Now I've, I've not been a good steward of that very thing. So the one thing that actually offers the world hope is the thing we've got to hold forward. Um, and share that. So we're going to hold Jesus 
up and hold him out and hold on to him. Uh, and if you walk in and you've got another view of politics, don't worry, we're not going to shove our version down your throat. You don't have to agree with us on that because we've got something way more important to talk about. Now, there are, once a person says, I believe in Jesus as Lord, man, there's all kinds of real world implications from that. And there are all kinds of issues that are super important. And that's why Christians say, wait a second, this is, abortion is really important. Or, you know, racial reconciliation is important. Or feeding the hungry is important. And, and stopping sex trade and adoption and immigration and ending hunger. And, you know, a lot, we can go on and on and on. But here's the thing, those are all important, but they are secondary. The primary thing is to get people to Jesus. So, and then we trust that when people come to Jesus, those Jesus followers are the very same ones then that the Spirit of God will empower and lead to engage in those issues in the way. But it doesn't matter. If we start caring more about those things first, we're not bringing a Jesus-transformed life to it. And so, and we can go at solving those things in different ways. Sometimes these guys do it wrong, and I have to correct them, you know. We may not all agree on how to address all those issues, which leads to another thing we want to say before we, we leave this. Um, and that is um, just the, the importance of unity in, in, in the church and among believers, really, and in our world. Unity was very, very important to Jesus. I don't think we remember that sometimes. He prayed for it. He died for it. Uh, he longs for it. And the New Testament says we're commanded to strive for it, protect it, and that it's going to be difficult. And so I think one time we have to acknowledge that sometimes we get unity kind of confused with uniformity where everything's the same or conformity where everyone bends in to act the same and they're not unity is different than that but uniformity and conformity are just it's, just easier. it's easier right because we can do that by just less our messy. sociological strata it's less messy um, by our um, our income level just hang with people like that or racially just kind of we just kind of hang with whoever you know is like us and so when churches do that it's like wow well, they're basically just a bunch of conservative white middle class folk or they're just a bunch of liberal black folk. That's kind of what that church is. We're just kind of just like the world in, in terms of being grouped up by these camps, categories, classes, and cultures. And that ultimately is what divides people. And so we're called to unity in the only way. We're going to demonstrate any fresh voice that's anything other than just a noisy gong and part of the din and the noise of the angriness is if we bring Jesus, not only just by being kind, but by demonstrating unity around that. Because our nation needs healing. And we, we have something to bring that conversation, but not if we bring it like everyone else is. So unity comes and hope and healing comes as we bring Jesus. Again, let's just be honest here. And you may not agree with this narrative, but this is the narrative. This is the perception of a lot of people in our country right now about Christians. After this election, there's a lot of people who feel like, oh, I know Christians. They're the ones who voted for and are supportive of hatred and bigotry and racism and inequality and they don't like immigrants or, you know, whatever, okay? You may not, like I said, you may not agree with that perception, but it is a strong one. And what it does is it, it means that there's a very important moment right now for the church, for Christians like us an opportunity, a responsibility to show them, well, let, let us show you what Christ followers are actually like. And by the way we live our lives, showing the kindness of Christ. Because one day, all of this political era and all this political storm goes away. 
and into the dust, just like every other political era before it. And one day, every person stands before Jesus, just them and Jesus alone. And at that point, it doesn't matter where you stood in this election. It matters where you stand with Jesus. And that's why, because it's crystal clear in that moment, when you and I are standing there, what's the main thing? That's why we're going to keep that main thing, the main thing, now and every day until Jesus comes. Okay? That's all i got to say about that. All right. So let's talk about the military. The military. Uh, and again, as with other issues, we want to start by talking about people first. And Rob, this is yep. near and dear to your heart for a lot of reasons. Yeah, my dad's a veteran. And so growing up in our home, I just learned to appreciate the men and women who serve as members of our armed forces. And I've unknowingly picked up habits that my dad would all, often do. I will, I'll stop somebody in uniform and uh, shake their hand, look them in the right look them in the eye and thank them for their service or a veteran with the cap on that signifies that they're a veteran. And uh, that's just been a part of my life uh, for as long as I can remember. And so we have a lot of folks who are serving in our nation's armed forces uh, in this area. And several of those who are actually a part of our church here at Mountain. Uh, just last weekend, we had Welcome to Mountain and a uh, uh, several folks from APG who came here as a part of BRAC were in that class. And so again and again, we have the opportunity to interact with and serve and encourage and love on people who, who serve our country in this way. So if you're a member of our armed forces or a veteran, we would just want you to know that we love you. We appreciate you. We want to serve you and encourage you. We want to do everything we can to come alongside you and support you. We appreciate uh, as well the special sacrifices and challenges that you and your family make and uh, have made. Uh, for example, we recognize that there's a transient nature to military life often. Uh, you, you may not know when you're going to be restationed elsewhere or deployed again. You may feel detached and disconnected, and sometimes it's easy to say, well, if I'm going to be moving on soon, uh, maybe I should just not get connected to the church or even not get connected to God. So we say, you know, hey, uh, come on over. As soon as you get into town, come on over to Mountain. Get here, join a group, make some friends. Uh, I know your life is full and hard and complicated, but jump in, mm -hmm. get connected. Let this be your home. Let this be your family mm -hmm. while you're here. And during times of deployment, we've seen folks take advantage of our online uh, services or online messages to stay connected. And we've had folks that use the same small group material that we're using here, and they use it where they're stationed, where they serve. And we do a lot of corresponding with soldiers uh, and families, and we provide support and encouragement while they're away and support and encouragement to spouses who remain here. And Mountain can also, we've seen it be a help to families where a family member is returning from deployment and, and those significant challenges that are faced by a family. When we get right down to it, military families need the same support structures that all of us need. They need uh, support for marriages and help with addictions and help uh, to help them grow in their faith or to help guide their kids and so on and so forth. So if you're a member of the armed services or a veteran, we just want to say thank you. And so if that's you, if you're a family member or a member of the armed services or a veteran, would you just stand right where you are, right where you are in all of our campuses? Would you just stand up right now? We just say thank you. Yeah. We love you. We want to encourage you and bless you. Thank you. It seems so important, Rob. Um, just recently was talking with a guy from Mountain here who had been 
doing some uh, a tour of duty in combat and the unique challenges that come with that, especially. This, this is more common than I think a lot of people realize. You know, he had seen things, felt like he was asked to do things that were unspeakably difficult and, and horrible, frankly. And the reentry there with family and marriage and society and ethically and morally before God. And, and it was so encouraging to hear how Mountain was such a big part of, of him processing through that. We just want to be here uh, for you in that. And also call, call you out. If you wear a uniform, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guards, Reserves, whatever, if you salute someone, we want to say if you're a Jesus follower, make sure your greatest, strongest, most loyal allegiance and that salute goes to Jesus first. And know that whatever mission you're sent on, your ultimate mission is the mission that Jesus sends you on. Be on mission for him wherever you are. And we've seen great things happen when disciples go undercover in the military for, for, uh, on mission for Jesus. And we, uh, we call you out on that and encourage you in that way. Okay, so let's turn the corner from talking about the people who serve in the military to the issue itself of warfare. Uh, of what, what, how should Christians think about this, this subject of um, you know, military combat and so forth. Um, and everyone knows that nations need to come up with, uh, you know, ways to defend and protect their nations and their boundaries and borders and everything. We're talking specifically here, however, about a Christian and churches, Christ followers. What should we be thinking and doing about this? And what is our position on war and that kind of thing? Well, by now you probably know Mountain doesn't take official positions on things like this because it's one of those areas that, as Rob said, is a non-essential. That means that this isn't on the entrance exam for you to get into heaven. You don't have to have the right answer on this. That's not the basis of you, you spending eternity with Jesus, okay? Which means that if we're not going to be divided out at the pearly gates on it, we don't need to divide here and now about it. We can respect and, and work with things with each other. So the correct Christian position on the subject of war is actually one of those things that from the very beginning of the church, even back to the time of Jesus, not all Jesus followers have agreed on. And basically, we could kind of group the perspectives into two different kind of circles. Um, some find in Scripture a strong argument that Christians ought not to be involved or supportive of war in any way, that we ought to conscientiously object. Um, God breathed human life, they would say, into people. It's never our place to end that life. Um, or, you know, it's in the Ten Commandments right there. Don't kill. Um, when sin enters the world in Genesis, the first thing that goes wrong is guy kills his brother, you know. Um, Jesus takes it a step farther and, and says, man, it's also what's in your heart. You know, if you have evil and killing and malicious desires in your heart, that's even a problem. And that's why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. And he says things like, you know, when someone punches you in the face, punch him back. No, he doesn't say that. He said, when someone punches you in the face, what does he say? Turn the other cheek, you know? And so he's always talking about this stronger force in the world that's really not connected to might makes right. It's not connected to fighting and military. It was a different kind of strength that he demonstrated and advocated for all the time, which is why even though everyone around him was trying to press into him to be the kind of Messiah who would kick butt and take names with force, he never took that approach. And um, so this, this whole idea um, from, from Scripture is, is a path that um, can sometimes be labeled under the category of pacifism. And um, it says Christians ought to stand for peace. And there's plenty in the Bible to support it. And many uh, really good, godly Christian people for a long, long time have adopted that stance and posture still do today. Now, at the same time, 
There are many Christians in history and still today who point to other uh, truths and other parts of the Bible to come to a very different kind of conclusion. And that is that that while they would say um, war is never beautiful, uh, sometimes it is the lesser of two evils and an undesirable but necessary choice in just the realities of the way the world works today. And that sometimes even God works through uh, human governments to thwart evil, to advance his cases. Sometimes governments are needed to defend the weak, to promote what's good. I mean, and do we really want to let Hitler run over the whole world? Or at some point, how are we just going to have a nice talk with him? Or, you know, so there's, there's um, this kind of idea. And then the reminder that Scripture says, obey your government leaders, pray for the king, and seize government as actually under the authority of God. And, and so uh, this, this idea... Uh, is sometimes lumped under the the subject of just war theory, and there's lots of variances to it, but also plenty of really smart, good, and godly people um, uh, throughout history and still today have adopted that posture or some version of it. And so what I'm trying to point out here is just simply that, you know, not all Christians are going to agree on this, and that we can demonstrate how we disagree by respectfully hearing each other out. And if someone disagrees with you and you're convinced you're right, it doesn't mean that someone who disagrees is an idiot or that they're not a real Christian. We've got to stop talking like that. That's just silly. It's not, and it's not true. So a couple of things that all of us can agree on, okay, is this. Um, war is ugly. Okay? It should never be glamorized, even if we dress it up in a patriotic garb. It's never beautiful. It's always a kind of signal of our failure as humans to live peacefully with one another when we have to fight. And it's just part of, inevitable part of this world until Jesus comes. But it's not glamorous and it's not beautiful. And also to acknowledge it's, it's more complicated than sometimes we like to admit. Um, Sometimes we like to think of things in black and white, simplistic terms as good guys and bad guys. And like we do it in sports even sometimes. Like we go into the locker room for the Ravens. We pray that the team will win. And when they win, we thank God. But you know what? They're doing the same thing in the Steelers locker room. So is it, when you win, does that mean God was on your side? You know? And we're talking about nations that belong to a world that Jesus died for the whole world. So it gets complicated. I actually had a guy one time. Um, who was so concerned about what was happening in Iraq that he was really enthusiastic, a Christian who thought was really enthusiastic about us dropping more bombs over there. But he seemed unaware of the complicating factor that, you know, there were women and children that were innocently, you know, dying in that. That's an ugly complicator with war. And, in fact, there were Christians who lived in Iraq who were dying in this war. Um, And he seemed, you know, actually literally ready to cheer for our military to kill our brothers and sisters in Christ because they live in another country. And I just thought, you know, at that moment, it just reminds us how complicated it can be. So war is never beautiful. It's never glamorous. It's a little more complicated, but it is inevitable. And so even as we're supporting those who are called into that calling to serve in that way, we always recognize this humble recognition that, you know, it's never exactly what we want. And we just lean forward, waiting eagerly for the day when scriptures like Isaiah 2 will come true. And it says they will beat their swords into plowshares. That's, that's a vision. And when their spears are turned into pruning hooks, when we can take all the weapons of warfare, melt them down and turn them into garden tools because we won't need them anymore. That's what happens when the kingdom comes. And uh, that's a beautiful vision and that's what we ache and learn, uh, yearn for. Okay?
That's some thoughts about that. So let's, let's keep going. Let's uh, tackle something different. Nathan, Israel. Israel. Okay, so we bring that, we've got several questions about that. And to some, I know that when we, this topic comes up to some people, it's like, oh my gosh, what, what is that even about? Why does it matter? Not even on my radar. Other people are like, yeah, this is the biggest deal in the world. Other people are very intensely focused on this. And we got a lot of questions just along the lines of, you know, how do we view Israel in light of, of biblical prophecy and these kind of things? And there really are sort of two pieces to this. One is scripture and prophecy. What does it say about Israel in the Bible? And then two is sort of the modern, you know, politics and foreign policy kind of stuff. So <clears throat> let's just say this. In the Bible, uh, way, way, way back in our story, there was this, uh, what we call the call of Abraham. God called this guy named Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and he said, through you and through your offspring, through your son, Isaac, I'm going to make a holy people and a nation that is going to be, be blessed in order to be a blessing to the whole world. And so he, he desires all nations and all peoples would be blessed. And so as we go uh, along in the story, we read the story of this, this people group called Israel, and they go through a time, the judges and the prophets and the kings and all these different periods in their history. And we see throughout that that the desire of God's heart is consistent, that they would be blessed in order to pass along the blessing of God to, to the whole world, okay, and show them the heart of God. And all along the process, there are all kinds of outsiders and foreigners and different kind of people who get welcomed into the family and grafted in, so to speak. Um, and then comes Jesus, and he grows right up out of that story. He's the fulfillment of a lot of these prophecies and expectations. And um, Jesus just makes it uber clear, couldn't be clearer. The message that uh, has always been at the heart of God for day one, that his love is for everyone. He, he, so he, he said, just like with Abraham, you know, my goal is to make one people who will love me and serve with me and be on mission with me, worship you know, me. This is what God wants. And so Jesus lives that out. He loves and he teaches and he heals and he, and he uh, serves and he dies and he rises again. And then comes the Holy Spirit. The same God, the same Christ comes in spirit form so that God can be everywhere. His, his, so we, what happens is when the Holy Spirit comes is we get this thing called the church, right? And what we have is a continuation of the same story of the people of God. The church, the big C church, in the very real sense, what the Bible teaches is that it is Israel 2.0, okay? It's the continuation of this same story. And so in other words, um, we, we, have, we have a complication here because this word Israel gets used in a lot of different ways, at least in, in my reckoning, like five different ways. So when someone's saying Israel, are they referring to the Israelites, the people in the Old Testament, the, that tribe, that people of God, right? Are they, when someone says Israel, are they referring to an ethnic group, people who are Jewish by ethnicity, right? Or does Israel mean a current religious group, people who worship Yahweh God, Jewish people by religious practice? Or does it mean the Israeli people, when sometimes when people say Israel, they're talking about the modern political nation state with boundaries and borders founded in 1947. Or do we mean the spiritual Israel, the, the, the people of God, the worshipers of Yahweh God, which now includes us as Christians. So when we look at the biblical prophecies about Israel and about kindness to Israel and blessings on Israel, we are going to follow the clear implications of the New Testament. Texts like Ephesians 3, 1 Peter, uh, the book of James, Romans 9 through 11, they say things like this. <clears throat> this is from Ephesians 3. It says, 
This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, the nations, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 9, Paul writes this, he says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. He says, in other words, it is not the, the children by special descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. In other words, it is faith in God, not bloodlines that determine the lineage and the family of the people of God. So in these and in a lot of other scriptures, we just see the text pointing to the church as the spiritual Israel, a people whose mission it is to be co-workers with God and to continue in in the fulfillment of that same promise that came to Abraham so long ago. So when we look at biblical prophecies about the temple, for example, and the rebuilding of the temple, we are going to go with the wider and the higher and the truer and better interpretation of Jesus himself, who said, you know, God is doing a new thing now. And he, he, he points to himself and says, I'm actually the temple now, okay? I'm the temple of God. And then he says, you know, and so is the whole earth. The whole earth is the temple of God. And so is any person who chooses to let God live in them, that's the temple. God has done this new thing, and with the Holy Spirit, God is saying, I'm, I'm no longer limiting myself. I'm, I don't want to just show my presence in one building, in one city over in Jerusalem. I'm going to be in every nook and cranny of this planet where I will be invited in, where I will be worshipped. That is going to be my temple and my territory. And so if that is true, if the New Testament is right, then I am every bit as much a child of Abraham as Isaac was, and you can be too in Christ, okay? That's the promise. So we are the new spiritual Israel, Yahweh worshipers rooted in that story and held in Christ. And then we just talk, if you want to talk about modern politics, uh, the political nation, foreign policy, all that kind of thing, we would just say, as has already been said, as a church, we're not into forming foreign policies. Not really our job description. Our foreign policy toward all nations is Jesus and the love of Christ. And then we would just say, so if you say, what do we feel about? What, how do we, what do we care about the modern nation of Israel? We would say, we love them. We want them to flourish and thrive as human beings. We want them to know and love God and walk with Jesus Christ. And that is the same thing we desire for people in Palestine and Iraq and Iran and Germany and England and Kenya and Harford County, Maryland. Yeah. Okay. Well said. We've got time for, for one more. And I'm really glad for this one because I work with these guys. And so when the questions came and just simply laid it out there, you know, it's a little awkward, but how do I deal with difficult people? And so we got, we got a lot, surprising number of questions there. And, and this is hard. You know, we're talking about mean people, people who manipulate you, people who uh, abuse you, people who uh, are just difficult and you can't resolve the conflict. Nothing will make you lose your Jesus vibe faster than being around people like that. And there might be someone you're married to. It might be someone at work. It might be someone on Facebook. Okay, uh, let's throw out some help. Well, I'll do my best. I, uh, I right. struggle with I'm right here. I struggle with difficult people all the time. Uh, and, you know, I would find myself uh, knowing that I'm right or believing I'm right, and that caused me to power up, and then before you know it, we were going back and forth. And so the big learning for me has been, and this has been a huge growth area, that uh, I need to set aside my need to be right and look for ways to move towards the other person. Set aside my need to be right and try to understand things from their perspective. 
Later in that uh, chapter of Romans that we read earlier, Paul says these words. He says, live in harmony with each other and don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Mm. So set aside your need to be right and move towards other people. Mm. That's good. Set aside the need to be right is, if I can't do that, I'm going to try to just win. Yeah. Because what I'm talking about is important, doggone it. But if I can set that aside, then I might be able to move toward. My grandpa used to say, uh, if you're hugging someone, they can't punch you. Move toward, because otherwise I'm going to move away. Yeah. And just to add to that, I would say we need to realize that conflict is inevitable. It's a part of life. Sometimes I think Christians think, oh, if I'm, if I'm following Jesus, I'm loving God, I'm not going to have conflict in my life. It's actually the, actually the opposite is true. Jesus promised that we will and maybe even experience more conflict than other people because of our faith. And uh, that's okay. Sometimes conflict comes out from a place of sin and it's rooted in, in the sins in our lives. But other times it's not so much. It's just because we're different. We see life differently. We have different cultures and perspectives. And so conflict it's just a part of life. So when we, when we can kind of own that, we can lean into what the Bible says about bearing with one another. There's just so much language in the New Testament about, uh, like Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 4. Those would be good for, for you to go and read sometime. This talks about having, being kind and humble and gentle and some of the things we've already said, patient, bearing with one another, forgiving as God has forgiven us, letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, uh, being, you know, the unity thing, uh, and just make, it says making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Um, there's this Christian concept of, uh, called long-suffering. It's kind of this old English word that we don't use much anymore, but it's a good word. Uh, the the Bible is full of these, this uh, talk about how God is so patient with us, and he, he bears with us, and we are to be that same way. We're to be patient with each other, slow to anger, right? Long suffering. And we talk about this, we also always have to throw in an important word about boundaries. Because when we say things like turn the other cheek, like be long suffering, bear with, what we don't want to do is give license to people to live in abusive and abused. You're not saying be a doormat. Right. We're not saying be a doormat or live in an unhealthy way. There are times for Christian people, maybe some people hearing me right now, you need to get out. You need to put a stop to the situation. You need to leave someone or kick someone out or get some help. Uh, those are very real things, and we want to encourage them if they're needed. Uh, we just want to say, right up until that point, though, and by the way, we need the community to discern when, when and where and how to do those things. But right up until that point, we want to be people who are long-suffering, who are bearing with, who are patient, who are uh, turning the other cheek and these kinds of things. So, yeah. A couple years ago, I had the opportunity to journey to Assisi, Italy, and uh, spent some time learning about uh, and falling in love with this guy named St. Francis. And one of his more well-known prayers, and maybe this can be just the prayer of our hearts today, he says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Where there is injury, pardon. And then he concludes with these words, O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Yeah, that's a good prayer for us. And it seems like it all stems right out of the basic teaching of Jesus about the golden rule. How do I deal with difficult people? I think of Matthew 7 where Jesus says, well, how would you want to be treated? 
do it that way. And and then you would think of this reminder of, um, we say sometimes say at Mountain, when someone's acting in a weird way, we say, well, you know what? Hurt people hurt people. When someone comes at you, there's usually a reason that you'll never get to it if you have to be right or win the argument or whatever. Uh, hurt people hurt people. And um, everyone kind of needs that golden rule. And turns out this is exactly what Jesus gives to us and then encourages us to give to others. He's a guy who loved everyone. He, he actually said, even love your enemies. So that's an that's, that's incredibly different perspective. And then he demonstrated it toward us. Take a look at Romans uh, chapter 5, which is a classic place to describe the action of Jesus. While we were still utterly helpless, at just the right time, Christ died for us, ungodly sinners. When you disagree with someone, they're an ungodly sinner in that moment. Look what Jesus did. Okay, Now, almost no one would be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for someone who's especially good. Next verse. But... God showed his great love for us in this way. When we were still sinners, God sent Christ to die for us. What a visible demonstration of his love and gratitude and graciousness toward us. I am so glad that Jesus loves, died for, and forgives people that are hard to get along with and selfish mean, ornery, stubborn people. Because it turns out I am one of those people. Stubborn, mean, hard to get along with sometimes, selfish, all that stuff. And so are you, especially. <laughs> we all are, aren't we? And yet Christ died. And so as we share communion right now, every single week we share the Lord's Supper. And the reason we do that is, one of the reasons is to just simply come here in a moment where we... Hold that bread and that cup, symbols of Jesus' love and his demonstration of grace toward us as we come to him, but also are sent to be like him uh, to others. So all believers in Jesus are invited to participate in this meal. And Jesus says, boy, you know, if you've got something with someone else, make that right in your heart and mind at this moment, and then reunite with Jesus as well. Let's pray together. God, we ask that you would give us wisdom. Wisdom to know how to make Jesus the center of our lives, the very hub, and here in our church as well, to make it our main thing. Help us to be kind, not jerks, so that we would never give anyone any reason to disregard Jesus. We pray for peace in Israel and in the world and in our relationships. Make us instruments of your peace, God, and thank you for making peace with the Father because of what Jesus has done on the cross. We pray in his name now. Amen. Amen.